Number one, with your faith, read the Bible every morning. Read it. Don't listen to it because if you're listening to it, it's passive listening. It's really hard to pay attention. Even if it's five minutes a day, mm -hmm. get up early, read the Bible. The best way to know how to maximize your God-given potential is to read the word and know God. So all of your life is going to get better when you read the Bible every day. Number two, prioritize your health. High-performing entrepreneurs prioritize their physical health. I've never met a really high net worth person personally. They're probably out there, but that, that doesn't prioritize their health. Number three, make sure you have clear financial goals as to what you want. Making as much money as possible is not a goal because how do you know when you've met it? One of the biggest things I see with entrepreneurs is we never feel like we have enough, but a lot of that stems from the fact that you don't have a target to aim for and making as much money as possible is not a target. Know what your goals are so you can actually celebrate those wins along the way. This is the Fit Investor Podcast, where we talk about how to live a more holistic life of being fit, not only financially, but physically and faithfully. We'll be joined by experts in all these areas to share their experiences and actionable and practical tips so that you can be a fit investor too. So now let's join our hosts, Kale Delaney, and Brenna Carls. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of The Fit Investor. I'm your host, Kale Delaney. Our co-host, Brenna Carls, unfortunately, she couldn't make it today. She had an important doctor's appointment, but we have an awesome guest. His name is Mr. Rob Stein, and Rob is actually one of North America's leading authorities in real estate education, a mindset coach, former professional bodybuilder, and creator of Earth to Orbit, where he leverages his master's in education spending the last 20 years working tirelessly to help others create successful businesses and lives for themselves. His expertise as an educator sets him apart from other coaches and mentors because he's able to explain the many complex aspects of building an incredible real estate business in a way that's easy to understand and even fun. His passion for bodybuilding and lifestyle that goes with it has also been a major contributing factor in developing his teaching method. And as a result, Rob has developed a turnkey online coaching system that's enabled agents nationwide to generate consistent six-figure income. And after deciding to create financial prosperity for himself, he transitioned from an underpaid, overworked middle school teacher to a top producing agent and team leader and became one of the top 5% of Asians, agents nationwide. And over the course of his career, he's worked with over 400 organizations and spoken to over 20,000 people on mindset and improving performance. And we're excited to have him here today to talk to us about all these things and talk to us about his faith as being a fellow brother in Christ. So Mr. Rob Stein, welcome to The Fit Investor. Let's go, Kale. Thank you so much, brother. It's a pleasure to be here, man. Absolutely. I appreciate you joining us. And we we're chatting offline here about a lot of things. And we wanted to start off with talking about talking about our faith and, and really yeah. specifically your faith journey. And so can you just Take us back, take us back to where it began, frankly, whether it was as a child or if it came to Christ later on in life, but just yeah. take us back uh, where your Christian journey started and, and through how that progressed. Yeah. It's been a really fulfilling, super enjoyable and very unexpected road for sure. So my journey to faith has been more recent. So I grew up Jewish and I usually, I'm still Jewish. I usually joke that I grew up Jewish, be more, more cultural Jew, I think is a lot of, uh, a lot of Jews are today. We have a very loving family. For me growing up in our house, our Jewish heritage was more, in my opinion, of a culture. Now, my parents growing up, it was different for them. For me growing up, it was mostly we would get together on the holidays. We would eat the food. We would talk about the meaning of the holidays. 
I would go to my friends' bar mitzvahs and stuff, but we rarely went to synagogue. And that's, that's pretty much where it stopped. You know, we didn't really talk about having a relationship with God or what that really, or unpacking any of that. Yeah. As I got older, I think as a lot of young adults do, you start questioning things and you look for logic and things seem very black and white when they're really not. And truthfully, for most of my life, God was not really in the picture. Fast forward then to a couple of years ago, we were living here in Austin, Texas. My wife and I, we moved here from New Jersey. And again, religion and faith was part of her life growing up in a Catholic household. She went to church very regularly. And we were living here in Austin. We recently had our child, our uh, little girl, Lily, who's a little over two now. And Katie wanted to start going to church again. And I was like, hey, cool, go for it. It's not my thing. Do your thing. And the short version is they say that when someone really starts following Christ, you can just see it. They don't Mm -hmm. even have to tell you, right? You just see the change. And I really started seeing, she's always been a loving and very happy person, but I just started seeing new levels of like happiness and peace and content. It was amazing. So I just started thinking like, maybe there's something to that. I wake up pretty early between four and four 30, depending on the day. And I started that listening to Ed Milet. I love Ed Milet, Grant Cardone, all, all those incredible entrepreneurs. And Ed Milet, again, also a very deep Christian. It was just another guy that I heard talking about waking up early. And I, I just thought to myself, man, all these people that wake up really early are the type of people I want to emulate. Maybe there's something to that. So I started doing it and I was like, yes, there is. I've been missing out. This is amazing. So I took the perspective of maybe there's something to this God thing that would be advantageous for me to look into. At the same time, very transparently, I was probably the most stressed and stretched that I've ever been. I was 37 at the time, um, building my, what is now, Uh, North America's leading online course for real estate agents. It took two years, over $150,000 of investment to build. Plus I had my first business in music composition and publishing. I was still doing real estate, still trying to be a husband and a father. And uh, truthfully, in an effort to build something for my family, I was separating from them a little bit. Mm -hmm. For the first time in a dozen years, there was some stress on our marriage. It was tough. And I, I really didn't know how to fix it. And it was just getting to a tipping point. And at the same time, Katie starts going to church and I start going with her and I start feeling what, what I know is the Holy Spirit now, but I just start feeling like, man, when I walk into this building, there's something happening here. Same time, coincidentally, not coincidentally, it's all God's timing. A really good friend and business referral partner of mine told me about a a group called the King's Brotherhood which is a Christian high-performing male entrepreneur mastermind community. It's an incredible community. And at the time I was like, men's mastermind business community sounds awesome. Christian, I don't know. I don't know about that. I'm not opposed to it, but I really respected this guy and took his recommendation seriously. Talked with the guy that ran the group, went to an event and immediately was hooked. I was like, man, this is a path I want to start going down. And every time I would... I'm a very results-oriented guy. Mm -hmm. So most of my life, I had truthfully, I had a really hard time grasping the concept of faith. Believing so deeply in something that I can't, at the time, what I perceive, visually see or see results of or proof of. But I decided to start trying. And the crazy thing was that every time I took a step towards God, he would take a step 
towards me and he's always there. Mm-hmm. And things would start happening in my life that were results. I would pray for something and I would, the prayer would be answered. Like you can't deny that's a result. Right. And I think a lot of people are looking for the clouds to part and hear a booming voice that says, Kale, do this thing today. Yeah, but it doesn't work that way. But God definitely speaks to us and things just started happening in my life that were just undeniable. And then last year at an event, I had a baptism of the Holy Spirit that was just, it it was, it felt like a bolt of lightning just went right through me. It was an incredible transformation. And at that moment, I just went all in and I've just been a hundred percent following Jesus and and reading the word. And, and so just was so wanting to be involved more and more running a small group Bible study at my, my house. My wife serves in the church. We're really involved there. And it's really become the foundation of our life. And it's mm-hmm. taken all aspects from business to marriage, to love, to family, to just a, a whole nother dimension. And when we exercise obedience to God and we exercise obedience to being as Christ-like as we can, that is when we're really in alignment with his, with his will for us. And that's when I think we really maximize our God-given potential. Right. Yeah. Wow, man, you hit on so many great things. Here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And in- okay. interestingly enough, just a side note to add, when I would, throughout most of my life, when people would ask me, are you Jewish? I didn't really know how to answer. Right. Because I didn't really feel comfortable saying yes, because I wasn't bar mitzvah. My parents asked me if I wanted one. I didn't really care. So I said no. But I grew up culturally Jewish and it definitely didn't feel right to say, no, I'm not. So I didn't really know how to respond. So I'd be like, yeah, sure. But now learning the history also of the Christian roots in Judaism. Right. Following Christ has connected me more to my Jewish heritage and actually given purpose behind it. And I, I truly believe, and maybe some Jews that are listening won't agree with me, but I, I know that there is nothing more Jewish that I can do than following Christ. And so it's given a whole new purpose to my life, but also to my Jewish roots as well. Yeah, that's awesome because this is this is exactly where I wanted to go in the first place is, is talking about your Jewish background. Did did your family have any issues when you decided to follow Christ or what was that or your that, friends that, or your community? Yeah, that that's a good question. Did they have issues? No, my parents are thank God blessed, very loving, very supportive. They came to my baptism and they were very happy for me. My mom and dad both have their own types of relationships with God. Since my baptism, God is working. My mom does recognize Jesus. She wears a little cross next to her Jewish star now. Yeah. Um, my dad also recognizes Jesus. Not quite not quite to the level maybe I would want him to, but truthfully, it's not about what I want. God meets us where we're at, and I'm grateful for their support. And I also have to check myself with their perspective. As an example, both my parents are Jewish. They grew up in a very different time. Right. Mm-hmm. I grew up with a little more of a blank slate. My dad especially faced really significant anti-Semitism growing up mm-hmm. in the 50s and 60s mm-hmm. before when you could not hire people because they were Jewish and you dirty Jew, you're going to burn in hell. He was told those kind of things. When... When, you know, growing up like that certainly hardens the heart and puts a wall up that is very tough to break. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but they are extremely supportive. My mom is going to church for a little while. Um, their relationship with God has certainly strengthened because of my journey, which I count as a blessing for sure. And they're extremely, very supportive of it for sure. Yeah. Now would, and I know you said growing up, you were more identified as Jewish culturally than from a religious standpoint, but sure. even do you have any thoughts as to, because I think one, one of the, one of the common things with Christians is honestly, I think they're afraid to speak to Jewish people about Christ. Mm. Um, <clears throat> because especially in today's culture, you don't want to be, you don't want to mm -hmm. be offensive. Yeah. Or, politically correct or, yeah, or, yeah, yeah. or the other thing. Do you have any thoughts on how one can approach someone yeah. who is with, from a, a Christian's perspective and, and talk to them about Christ? That's a really good question. I'll tell you what worked for me and what didn't work for me. Yeah. Growing up, I wouldn't say I faced anti-Semitism, but I think I think a lot of people face maybe Jehovah's Witnesses, or I, I think most people have had a time when someone has come up to them and tried to talk to them about Christ. Right. And I think most people do are really bad at it. For example, if we look at a sales conversation, I'm not going to go up to a potential client that might express interest and just start talking about why they need to use me and all the bad things that are going to happen to them if they don't use my services or they don't use a great, right? I'm going to ask them questions right. that hopefully will bring them to their own conclusion to engage. And so I can start, one of the things I do as a coach is I, I tell people what to do. I also coach people on what not to do because that's also really important. So I think telling, I think a lot of, especially passionate Christians understand there's one way to the kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. That is through the sun. And because we know that and we are so passionate about that, we desperately, truly, deeply in our hearts want to save everybody. And we know what God's judgment may bring if they don't walk that path with us. We don't want that for them. Right. And so that's where we go first. We say, look, here's what's going to happen if you don't, right? But that's not how to bring people around. God's timing is perfect always. And I can tell you when I started going to church with Katie, it was very much like, she was like, I'd really like you to come. I'm not like pushing it, but gosh, I'd really love for you to come. Mm -hmm. So I started going and I went to my first brotherhood event, which was amazing. And then, and this was the previous church we were at. The church we're at now, the pastor is, is incredible. He's a former Marine. He is just spitting fire, super motivating. I love that. I think that would have been a little too intense for me for my first pastor. <laughs> right. As a Jew coming into like dipping my toe in the pool, so to speak. And so the first church we were at, Generations Church in Leander, Texas, Pastor Bob Bryden, incredible man of God, incredible church, just the guy I needed at that time in my walk. And he did a, a series, a four-week series, which really took a lot of courage called, it was The Jewish Jesus. It was approaching the high holidays. I've never really personally seen a a pastor that so openly did a series like that, but he really unpacked over the course of four weeks the Jewish roots of Christianity. Right. So that was really my first series 
that I was exposed to. And growing up, I think a lot of Jews, just like a lot of Christians, like a lot of Christians don't understand the Jewish roots of their faith. I was just They don't say understand that. that Jesus was a rabbi. They don't understand all of the disciples were Jewish, right? right? They don't understand that the Bible was written by Jews. They don't understand Paul, who wrote the majority of the Bible, was Jew, right? Like, they don't know these things. Right. I didn't know those things. And yeah, you hear like Jesus was Jewish, but it stopped right there. I didn't really, I didn't even, never really thought beyond that. Mm-hmm. And, and starting there and realizing, basically, we have everybody was Jewish, God's chosen people. And Jesus comes along. And some people said, some Jews said he is the Messiah. And they became believers while still being Jewish. Mm-hmm. And some Jews said he's not the Messiah partly because he really threatened their way of life and because he really railed against religion. And up until then, especially if you look at the Old Testament, you know, God was religion. It was strictness. It was obedience. It was following these rules. And Jesus came to change the game. Mm -hmm. And I think the Jewish perception of who the Messiah was going to be, they expected this warrior, this politician, this person that was going to come conquer the Roman Empire. And instead they get a guy who's breaking bread with poor Gentiles. They couldn't understand. Right. Yeah. But growing up, I always thought if I even hear the word Jesus, right, and I want to follow that, it's like playing for the other team. It's like I, a converting, so to speak. Yep. But once Pastor Bob unpacked that for me and I realized, wait a minute, it's not a different path. It's a logical extension of the same path. And there's actually, and so, and then Katie and I started like, why aren't all Christians Jewish? Like, why isn't everyone Jew- like this? Ma- this doesn't make any sense. Like, how did Jews not recognize this? Mm-hmm. And today, the official Jewish stance is: if you believe in Jesus, you're not Jewish. Right. But I think if for Christians that want to talk to Jews about it, I think educating and asking them questions about: Are you aware of the Jewish roots of Christianity? Did you know the Bible was written by all Jews? Did you know that? I didn't. <laughs> I think a lot of people don't. And even still, 90-something percent of Christians have never read the Bible front to back. Yep. They don't know either. Yep. So I think there's a lot of ignorance on both parts. And I think education, first and foremost, on both sides, if you're a Christian and you want to talk to Jews about coming to Christ, you need to learn first. You need to read the Old and New Testament. You need to take it upon yourself to educate so that you can speak intelligently about, I think if more Jews really understood the Jewish foundations of Christianity and how intertwined it is, they would be more open to it rather than saying, you're going to go to hell if you don't play by this set of guidelines. Right. And so going to that series and understanding the Jewish roots, what really opened that door for me where I felt comfortable walking through it. Yeah. No, this, <laughs> you, you're literally... <laughs> Throughout the conversation, right, you, you were like saying so many things that I was about to interject and throw in that <laughs> everything that I was thinking. So, <laughs> so yeah, I just want to just highlight a few of those things, though, because it's that was beautiful. So, number one, just like you said, we as Christians have a responsibility, frankly, to read the scripture. There really is no excuse at this point. We have, especially in America and, and Western culture, free worlds, we have access to the Bible beyond measure, yep. right? So there's really no excuse for not reading it. So I think that's number one. And that, like you said, really does bring in the 
understanding that, yes, Christianity has its roots in Judaism. Just like you said, all of the apostles are Jews. Jesus was Jewish. The first converts to Christianity mm-hmm. were Jewish. Yeah. So it, there's an inextricable link between Judaism and Christianity. Yeah. Uh, and the pitfall, again, like you mentioned, though, is unfortunately in Judaism that, like you said, it, to believe in Jesus oftentimes is ostracized and meaning that you are no longer Jewish when the reality is that you can be Jewish yeah. and, and believe in Christ. Yeah. You know, a common term that people use instead of Christianity is a messianic Jew yeah. or things like that. But yeah, it's a logical extension. I like how you put it there. It's a logical yeah. extension of Judaism, not a separate religion, not a, not a this or that or. And, right. and the messianic Jew community is a lot bigger than people think. I think a lot of Jews are just afraid to talk about it. Shortly after I called my pastor, after I told him about my experience with the Holy Spirit and I'm going to be baptized and I'm just like all in, he it was amazing. He took me on a trip up to Dallas, Texas, to the Gateway. We made a, it was an incredible weekend. On a Friday night, we went to the Gateway Jewish Ministries at Gateway Church, like the headquarters. They do that once a month. So Jewish Ministries and at my church at Generations, I certainly didn't face any anti-Semitism by any means, but there were some raised eyebrows and I didn't feel, I felt like a community in Christ. I did not feel obviously like a community of Jews. Right. And so it was my first time at a Messianic Jewish service in the Jewish ministries. And there's like hundreds of Jews that like look like Jews. Mm. And it was amazing being like, oh, wow, there's a lot of people here. And then the next morning, uh, on Saturday morning, we went to one of the largest Messianic synagogues in the country. Dallas is a really big hub of Messianic Jews. Right. And there were like almost 500 people in that service. And it was just like a straight from my childhood going to temple, but everyone's following Yeshua. Right. And that was a really amazing experience to make me feel the, that allowed me to feel like a sense of community mm. as a Messianic Jew. And it's so easy to go to YouTube and just dive down the Messianic Jew rabbit hole and find it. I think also in Israel, and of course we are praying for Israel right now, mm. there are also a lot of Jews that do follow Jesus and want to learn more about it, but there they certainly can't talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, and, and frankly, I wish there was more intermingling in the the general, I'm going to use the, the Christian term and more generally here, but in the general Christian population, a more inter- intermingling of if we, call, if we want to call it Gentile Christians and, and Jewish Christians or Messianic Jews, um, I don't think we see that enough. And yeah. I think that'd be wonderful because like we we're just talking about in that, unfortunately, a lot of Christians now don't read the scripture or in particular, don't read the Old Testament, mm-hmm. whereas a lot of Jewish people are brought up yeah. learning and understanding what we'll call the Old Testament and so I, I just think if there was more intermingling of Christians with a Jewish background with Gentile Christians, it would just bring such more understanding and yeah. depth to Christianity, frankly, mm-hmm. because it, 
yeah, it would just bring that historical aspect of it, the cultural aspect of it, yeah. really help bring it alive. And I think we miss that a lot in the the typical, again, just calling it Gentile Christianity. Yeah. Uh, we, we really miss out on the richness of the Jewish background of Christianity. So I think that would be a wonderful thing. And I don't know how, how that can happen, but it was just coming to mind. And I, I'm sure you're probably familiar with Michael Rydelnik. He's or Moody Bible Institute. Are you familiar with Moody, Moody yes. Bible? So he's, he's actually, I think he's the Dean of the college now, but he's a, you know, Messianic Jew, very famous professor of Jewish studies. And he's on Moody radio. I listen to Moody radio a lot, but so he does this program called like open line, where it's basically for two hours, people call in and ask any questions about the Bible or, or Christianity and he'll answer them. But I was listening to it, I think maybe last week sometime and people were asking about why, <clears throat> why is there still, why is there still not like outright or open anti-Semitism, but why is there, even in the Christian community, why is there still sometimes a feeling of resentment towards Jews and for the crucifixion of Christ? Mm -hmm. And he just put it very succinctly in saying that, look, not every Jew was responsible for crucifying Christ. Mm -hmm. And that, let's face it, there were Gentiles there too, mm -hmm. right? So like when he said that, I was like, man, that's such a, that's such a good point, a good way to put it. Like it, it's so ridiculous to hold this, I don't even know what to call it, but just to hold this grudge, I guess, that I think, especially in the evangelical community, I think can sometimes have against the Jewish community for frankly, what was part of God's plan in the beginning or at right. the end of the day, but something that, again, it wasn't people who are alive today that did it. And it wasn't just the Jewish community that did it. Yeah. Gentiles were just as involved in the whole process. And let's also remember that the Romans made the decision. Right. And they were not Jewish. Right. The, it was the Roman governor that ultimately made the call to appease the people to do mm -hmm. it. <laughs> exactly yeah so there, there's yeah if you want to point the finger there's culpability on every side yeah so i just thought it was just another important thing that that people understand because it is still out there unfortunately yeah. but again are. i think it all so many things in society just stems from a lack of education right mm -hmm. just a lack of education and i think if we took the time to educate ourselves again on both sides only good things could come from that for sure yeah i i think i'd love to go on talking about this, uh, but I think it, you made a natural segue in talking about how to approach people of a of Jewish faith about Christianity and you linked it to a sales approach yeah. more or less, right? So why don't we dive into that a little bit into getting in, getting started in your real estate career, your sales career, how that whole Genesis started and took you to where you are now. Yeah. So my first, I used to be a middle school teacher mm -hmm. and my first business, which I always knew I wanted to be involved with on a heavy level, my first sport was marching band, competitive marching band. I'm a bando, one day at band camp, that was my life. And I knew I wanted to do that at a very high level. So I started a business composing music for competitive marching bands in music composition and publishing. And, and over the course of 10 years, I built that business very successfully and was able to quit my teaching job. Okay. So I was a full-time entrepreneur and I'd quit my teaching job in 2016. And after a couple of years of that, I just thought to myself, I feel like I want to have some additional streams of income. 
And the way I, that business gets paid is primarily from public school music budgets. And I just started thinking like, man, I don't know if I feel comfortable staking my retirement on public school music budgets. <laughs> Thank God, because when COVID happened, there was like no marching band for two years. Right. And um, so my dad's been in real estate for about 39 years now. From, okay. from an agent to an incredible investor to a manager for one of the top producing offices of Berkshire Hathaway. He's just a total rock star. And he's extremely passionate about real estate. And I always thought it was super boring <laughs> growing up. He, man, I want to say maybe about 10 years ago, engaged with a coach. He was trying to do some investing, my dad was. And he was trying to figure stuff out for himself. He it wasn't really going too well. And he, he found a great coach hired an amazing coach. And within a couple of years, established a really great real estate portfolio for himself, bringing in over six figures of income per year net and just really crushing it mm -hmm. using creative financing, seller financing, private money, hard money, and primarily seller financing and private money. And I just occurred to, it just occurred to me like, wow, like maybe I should get involved in some of that. Obviously his coach is really good. Maybe I can learn some of that. And my dad around that time, invited me to Seattle where his coach was based out of to go to one of his real estate investing seminars. And I was like, well, it'd be cool father-son time and maybe I'll check out this real estate thing. And man, after that weekend, I was hooked. I was so hooked. But something that was really interesting that happened. As a teacher, I think people in salaried positions generally have a much different outlook of life and mindset than entrepreneurs do. When you're in a salaried position, and there's something to be said for that, and we obviously society needs people in salaried positions, but you don't really feel a huge sense of accountability because someone else is holding you accountable. You're leveraging another entrepreneur's success that they've built something that is so successful and stable that you call it job security. Or maybe you're like me and the government supports you in a teaching position. And so you feel maybe like you're entitled to certain things. And I can tell you for sure, my political spectrum and just my outlook on what is really owed to me has changed drastically since becoming a full-time entrepreneur. But I always had an entrepreneurial mindset as a teacher, and I always felt very isolated there. Right. Like I remember when I quit my teaching job and I told my fellow coworkers, overwhelmingly, they were, why would you do that? You have tenure, you have pension, you have yeah, but I'm making 53 grand a year. And maybe if I stick in it for 30 years and do the best job ever, I'll make 70 grand. Like it makes no sense. I didn't like that my income was capped regardless of my effort. Right. I could check out or give it up my all and it doesn't matter. And so when I went to my first real estate seminar for investors with my dad, and I decide I'm going to get involved in real estate investing. And I imagine that when people ask me, Rob, what are you going to do in real estate? And I'm like, I haven't done anything yet. I'm going to try to do rentals or whatever. And this was the first time I'm ever in the room with like millionaires. There's even a couple billionaires there. And they're crushing it. They're doing big things. And they asked me and I'm like, I'm brand new. I'm used to be a I'm teacher. Here's what I'm trying to do. And every single one of them was like, that's amazing. Tell me more about that. You can do it. Here's my phone number. How can I help you? And it was the first time I was just surrounded by such positivity, by people that weren't afraid to think big and encouraged me to think big. And so from a real estate perspective and an entrepreneurial perspective, I just got hooked. Mm -hmm. So I just dove into real estate investing with my dad as my mentor. And then after about a year and a half through 
networking with those people, Katie and I decided like life here in New Jersey is good, but we want abundance. And as an entrepreneur, those of you listening, there is nothing wrong with owning your goals because society today, really easy to make us feel like if you say, I want to achieve a lot of success, I want to do a lot of good in the world. I want to make a ton of money so I can do amazing things with it. It's shame on you, right? Mm -hmm. It's money is the root of all evil, which it isn't. The love of money is the root of all evil. And I can tell you in the yep. past couple of years, I've met seven, eight, nine, and 10 figure Christians that are the most incredible, generous, amazing people. And their faith is the foundation of their business. And they are just beautiful souls. So you, you have to own the fact and be comfortable owning the fact of what you want. And so I just became really comfortable with that. And Katie quit her teaching job. She's, she had the golden handcuffs. She had a $65,000 a year gig with amazing health benefits. And we were like, we're going to move to Austin. We're going to burn the docks. We're going to become real estate agents <laughs> and do real estate investing. And to be honest with you, man, it was really scary. It took about seven months to close our first deal. New agent, new city, 20,000 other agents here trying to figure it out. But we just worked really hard. Grit. There were a lot of days when we looked at each other just in tears saying, what did we do? Did we make a huge mistake? <laughs> we said, no, failure is not an option. We're going to keep going. And coincidentally, my first week of commissions as an agent, I closed three deals in the same week. And I made about 45 grand that week. <laughs> Right. And even though it took a long time, it took that seven months to do right. the proof of concept of saying I made almost last year's annual salary this week. Right. What else am I really capable of? And so that's when things really took off. I then engaged, leveraged that income to engage in uh, high level one to one coaching with one of the best real estate coaches in the world. Within two years, became a top 5% agent nationwide in sales volume and income. And I'm an educator, right? So I always knew I wanted to start a team. And then I started a team and became a top 5% team leader nationwide in sales volume and income. But so that was a few years ago. And what I realized my problem was that I was actually creating my own bottleneck for my agent's success because I'm manually trying to disseminate this information to each one of them. And there's only so much I can do that. Right. And coincidentally, at the time, a, a really good friend of mine who specialized in online courses which I didn't know anything about was like, have you ever thought about doing a real estate course? And I was like, no. And he showed me the numbers of his course. And I was like, dude, I want, yeah, let's do that. And then I thought, dude, I can help so many more agents. And I know for sure teaching is the gift God has blessed me with teaching and speaking. And he didn't bless me with this gift to play small and train a team of 15 or 20 agents. Right. My goal is to have over a thousand agents in my course by the end of the year. We just launched this year. And I will, with the, the grace of God, meet that goal. But I thought, man, by leveraging technology, I can help so many more agents, so many more. And so I took about two years and again, about $150,000 of my own money to invest in creating Earth to Orbit using interactive video technology with Bradley out over at Lightspeed headquarters in Las Vegas. The same platform that like Grant Cardone and Tony Robbins and all those heavy hitters put their content on because of the interactive technology. It's the first ever interactive training course in the real estate agent world. And it's incredible. It's truly the step-by-step -step blueprint agents need to crush it. We have individual agents all over the country that are using it, hundreds of them. And more recently over the past few months, we've had some amazing movement bringing on entire brokerages 
from like hundreds. And we actually talked to a broker yesterday of 1300 agents that wow. might be onboarding every single one of them to the course. And they're white labeling to create a branded product from their company, leveraging the education that gives agents the access they need to the training equally as importantly allows the leadership of that company to leverage their time mm -hmm. to now have more time to go do bigger things for the company rather than like manually coaching all these agents. Yeah. So that's where we're at right now, focused on coaching, speaking, and serving as many agents as I can. Yeah. So this, I want to dive into the coaching thing in a minute here, but you, so when you guys left New Jersey and you said your wife was teaching as well. Yeah. So you guys both quit your teaching positions at the same time when you moved to not, Austin? Not at the same time. I quit my teaching job two years before she did. Okay. But okay. The, one of the things that really allowed me to do that comfortably, my music business was making about four times as much as my teaching salary, Right. Okay. but it was still cyclical. So most of the money came in from like March through September. And she had a consistent biweekly paycheck and amazing health benefits. Right. Okay. So she still had like that foundation of our income in turn, even though I made more, she still had a really consistent, we knew what we were going to get and the health benefits were incredible. Right. So that was really a game changer. So it, it was for sure scary when she quit her teaching job and we were just completely commission-based entrepreneurs. Right. Okay. So then did you disband that your band, marching band company? At that. No, I'm still very involved in that. I've okay. created a lot of great systems where I have a team that pretty much runs that business without me. I'm still involved as needed for sure. And I still write a little bit of music, but I look at each piece of music like a real estate portfolio, like accumulating a property because when I write original music. So when I create a piece of music that I can sell for between two to $4,000 each, I can sell it over and over again every year to bands all over the country. Hmm. So okay. that business is probably about 85 to 90% very significant passive income. Yeah. <laughs> that building that business and sustaining it allowed me to work for an agent for seven months and not get paid because right. that business was still paying our bills. And thank God as COVID hit and my real estate career really took off at just the right time because my music business for those two years made very little income because there was no marching band because right. of COVID. Okay. All right. So that, that helps clarify. And that's what I was trying to get to it yeah. because, you know, I think that's one of the, um, the struggles that a lot of people have too, yeah. is when they decide to start going down this entrepreneurial journey, a lot of people get into it because they want to leave their right. job. Right. And they get to the point of, okay, do I burn the ships and just say, okay, I'm done. I'm going all in. Failure is not an option. I'm diving in. That's it. Or do you keep that job or whatever it is, as long as you can build your business on the side until it becomes substantial enough to replace your income and then, yeah. you know, then leave your job. So I'm just curious what your thoughts and from your experience, what your advice would be to someone who's yeah. in that position. That's a good question. I addressed that in actually the first chapter of my book coming out, my first book, it's called Impossible to Fail, coming out yes. within the next three to four months. Well, There's a great quote that Reed Hoffman, who's the co-founder of LinkedIn has, and he says, Starting a business is like jumping off a cliff and building an airplane on the way down. <laughs> and so the analogy I make in the opening chapter of the book is if you imagine the cliff that you're jumping off of, everyone's cliff is at a different height. Right. 
the height of the cliff equals how much money you have until you run out of money. Mm. So the floor, when you hit the ground and go splat, is the amount of money you need to make in order to not quit within that time frame. So for example, if uh, the, the answer is very subjective, right? If you have enough money in the bank to say, I can start a business and not get paid for three years, I think you're in pretty good shape. If you start a business and say, I can afford not to get paid for six months and be okay, you really uh, need to start making money right away. Because what a lot of entrepreneurs forget is, especially if you're starting a new skill set, you have to get good enough at your skill set to get paid. Right. Especially if you're in sales, it's very unlikely you're going to close a sale really fast mm -hmm. because you have to get good at sales first, <laughs> right? Because you're going to have conversations where people are going to say no, because you don't know how to have that conversation yet and how to convert them. For me, I have a pattern of leveraging current streams of income to build new streams of income. So as an example, I had my teaching gig. Wasn't a ton of money, but it was like 50 something thousand dollars a year and health benefits. And I built my music business on the side. Right. That was incredibly challenging to do. I'd wake up early, go to school, come home, write music till 10 o'clock, fall asleep, do that same thing. I did that for 10 years, mm -hmm. but it was worth it. So I leveraged my teaching income to build my music business. Then I leveraged my music business to build my real estate career. Then I leveraged my real estate career as an agent to spend all the time and money to take this course, which took basically almost three years to become profitable from the time I started building it till the time I started selling it and making money. Okay. Now I'm leveraging my coaching career to get more into speaking for mindset, speaking for all industries, which I love to do and starting some new business ventures. I think leveraging current income is a really helpful way to do it while you're building something new for a couple of reasons. Number one, it allows you to build a business without taking an outside investment, which do if you need to. But I think if you can start, if you can bootstrap to the point where you become profitable and then leverage that income to, to scale, that's the way to do it. But also realizing truthfully, it's really hard to do because it takes more work than most people are willing to do. Notice I didn't say more than they can do, more than they're willing to do. And when people ask me how I've built a lot of seemingly unrelated things like a music business and a bodybuilding career and a real estate company and a course, my answer is that I do more things faster than most people are willing to do. I'm willing to work 18 hour days and burn the candle at both ends and make the sacrifices now to get what I want later. Whereas most people just aren't willing to make those short-term sacrifices. I have an agent in my course. His name is Matt Solis. He's up in Dallas, an incredible agent. And when he joined my course in August of last year, he's a full-time teacher, nine to five teacher, right? Or I get eight to four teacher. And he said, I desperately want this to be my last year teaching. Can I build a sustainable real estate career part-time in a year? Hmm. And I told him, yes, undoubtedly with my coaching, you can. And it's going to be the hardest thing you've ever done. <laughs> I was very transparent. Like you can do it. It's going to be the hardest thing you've ever done. You probably won't be able to take a day off at all. You should expect to work every Saturday, every Sunday for the entire year. But if you follow my instructions, yes, it is possible. And right. he did. He worked harder than almost anyone I've ever seen. And in his first full year of real estate, almost $245,000 in gross commissions. And he quit his wow. teaching job. Wow. But he did the work. That's it. And now he is a one-on-one -on -one coaching student and we're working on scaling his business. 
smart with leverage and marketing dollars without scaling his time investment. So I think at the beginning, you just, you got to bootstrap and you, and there is a certain amount of just brute force that it takes. And then eventually when you become profitable, you can then start adding finesse and skills and leverage through people and technology and marketing. Yeah. That's again, just another beautiful and succinct way to put it because, um, I followed that path as well. Yeah. <laughs> I bootstrapped it for two years while yeah. I was working my W-2. We have family. I mentioned you, I have three kids. We had some pretty severe medical issues throughout that time. It was in the midst wow. of COVID as well. And it was the kind of thing of it's either you throw in the towel and just give up on what you've done yeah. so far and go back to living that life that you so desperately wanted to get out of, or you suck it up. And you put in the work yep. and you make it happen. And thankfully I did. And I came out on the other side. Yeah. Um, but that's the, that's really the pivotal point where a lot of people fail. Yeah. They, they get to that real tough point, that fulcrum point, and they have to make that decision. And that's why, like one thing that I preach so much is if you are going to get on, into an entrepreneurial endeavor, you really need to have a strong why. Yes. Know, that you're doing it because when you get to that pivot point, that's the thing that's going to either take you over the hump and keep you going yep. or let you throw in the towel and go back to the way things were. If you don't have that strong why, that strong commitment as to why you're doing this, why you're putting in this hard work now, you have a high likelihood of giving up. Yeah. So it's just a critical thing for people to understand when they get into this. Cause yeah, like you said, it is going to be one of the hardest things you absolutely do. It can be isolating. It oftentimes is isolating, right? Mm -hmm. Especially once that that mindset switch goes off in your head where you're mm -hmm. thinking like an entrepreneur now, no longer like a, a salaried person. It can isolate you from friends. It can isolate you from family, your coworkers, yeah. you know, all those different things. And so you got to have that strong why and you got to start building that community and networking within whatever that industry is that right. you're looking to pursue. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it in the beginning as well, but I had the same exact experience when I started pursuing real estate. And that's one of the things that really drew me in as well is that, um, like you said, it was just such a welcoming and abundance mindset community that frankly, I've yet to see any other industry that has that same openness, uh, willingness to help uh, from all stages of, of success yep. uh, as, as the real estate industry. And you know, you had met, you had asked me offline here in the beginning as to why I started the, the podcast and everything. And, and that was another one of the impetuses was because I saw that abundance mindset. And the more I started talking with my network in the real estate industry, the more I started seeing that there's a lot of people, successful people in real estate here who are Christians. They might not be very outspoken about it or very open about it, but the more you start talking and getting to know people, there's a lot of Christians in this community. And to me, it just makes sense. That's why this industry has such an openness and abundance mindset mm. uh, and why I wanted to try to create an open forum where, yeah. where we could talk about it more. I'm glad you mentioned that, though, because I, I had that same exact experience mm -hmm. with it. But uh, I wanted to jump into the fitness portion a little bit here before we went out of time, because, again, one of the reasons I preach it so much, and, and I think you have the same mindset, is that it is not just a physical manifestation thing it is probably even more so about the mindset 
and about the discipline and how that can spill over into mm -hmm. these different aspects of your life, your, your mm -hmm. finances and your fate. So why don't we talk about that? What got you started down this fitness routine yeah. into the professional bodybuilding world? And why is it so important to you? Yeah. So I grew up probably feel about sixth grade, just straight fat. I, mean, I couldn't help it. Just genetics. I got made fun of a lot for it. And I just couldn't understand as a little kid, we're doing the physical fitness test. Like how come that kid has his abs and can do pull-ups and I can't, I don't, I don't get it. So for sure that played a role. And then I lost some of that baby fat. I grew up never really fit. Don't have a fast metabolism. Don't have great genetics, but just chunky. And then once I graduated college, I was very busy, but leading a very sedentary life. So I would teach all day. So I would stand or sit all day. Then I would drive in a car and go teach marching bands, standing or sitting all day. I was eating out a lot, Dunkin' Donuts here, getting a sandwich on the road here, fast food with fries over here. And over the course of a couple of years, I got to about 200, almost 210. Now you can't tell from the video, but I'm 5'4". I'm not a tall dude. So being 210 pounds at 5'4", when none of it is muscle is really bad. I had to hold my breath to tie my shoes. I was breaking a sweat going upstairs in my house. I was getting really fat. And I saw a picture of myself one day, you know, when you, when you see a picture of yourself that you're like, yo, am I that bad? And I was like really disappointed in myself. I couldn't believe it. I How went this time. That was about 24. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so and I'm just eating junk. I don't know any better. And, but I knew I didn't want to keep getting unhealthy because where's that going to lead? Mm -hmm. Am I going to be like one of these huge people on the scooter in Walmart? Like, I don't want to. Like it's not a healthy way to be. Right. And I should walk that back and say, that's probably not the most Christian thing to say, but I didn't want to become a really unhealthy out of shape person to have a heart attack at 40 years old. Right. But over time, I just really started noticing and feeling the effects of it. So I went to the gym for the first time in years, got on a scale, one of those medical scales and I'm turning the. <laughs> I'm like, for sure, I'm probably 170. And I'm like, what is happening here? Like, how is this? <laughs> Eventually, I moved the bottom one over to 200. Okay. And the thing still didn't budge. And I was like, this is nuts. So eventually, I realized I was probably about 208, 209. And I was just super ashamed of myself. So I started just trying to figure it out. I was trying to figure out, is it running? Is it this? Is it that? I got into running for a while because when you don't know any better, that's what you do when you want to lose weight, right? You run. And I hated running. <laughs> <laughs> and one day I was running and it was like 10 degrees out and it was snowing. And I just said, I'm, I hate running. I'm done. Quit running. Right. And that night I was watching TV and I saw an infomercial for Tony Horton's P90X. And you know, he revolutionized the home training. Yeah. And I was like, that seems to make sense. And I actually knew a couple guys that did it and spoke very highly of it. So I tried it. And so I got the program. I got the equipment. I got the Bowflex adjustable dumbbells. I got the pull-up bar and I did it for 90 days. Now, it took me the whole 90 days just to be able to get through the workouts. Mm. Like I could probably do about 10 push-ups before I couldn't do any more. I couldn't lift my feet off of the ground for one pull-up. Couldn't do a pull-up. Couldn't get through any of the workouts. The first day I did the plyometrics workout, I don't think I, I, I literally crawled up and down the stairs for two weeks. Like I just couldn't walk. It was crazy. <laughs> but by the end of the 90 days, I could do a few pull-ups. I could do 30 push-ups and I could get through the workouts, but I didn't really have great results because I didn't stick to the nutrition. Mm. I just didn't want to. 
learning how to eat healthy was just a barrier for me that I didn't want to go there. But I was also really frustrated because I was like, I just spent 90 days doing this thing and I don't have the after beach body that I see on all the commercials. I want that. So I decided, what's the point? I'm just, what's the point of doing this if I'm not going to do it all the way? The program comes with this little nutrition booklet, teaches you what to do. So I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to commit to the nutrition and I'm going to do the program again because I didn't even look at the whole 90 days as valid because I couldn't even do the workouts most of the time. So I was like, now I'm going to do it right. I'm going to be able to do the workouts from day one and I'm going to stick to the nutrition. And after about five to six weeks of that, I start seeing crazy results. Hmm. By the end of the 90 days, I could do like 20 pull-ups. I had gotten down to 133 pounds. Oh, I had man. a little six pack. I had the the beach body. I had the after picture. Wow. And uh, so a few things happened because of that. Number one, I realized I grew up for at that point, about 25 years of my life thinking I was not meant to look a certain way. My body's just not meant to. And, and as young boys, we look at like Hercules and we idolize Lou Ferrigno and Arnold Schwarzenegger and all the action movies and Rambo. I want to look like that. You want to emulate that. And I was just thought, I can't look like that. Mm -hmm. And I went from 25 years of that mindset to in six months, I took control and transformed my body in a way I never thought possible. Mm -hmm. And it was just such a mindset shift of like, with the right guidance and the right determination and the right consistency and the right level of action, you can literally do anything you want. Yeah. You can accomplish anything you want, which is why I call my book impossible to fail with the right education implemented with massive action, relentless consistency and time. Those three, it is impossible to fail. Yep. Truly. Mm -hmm. and, and so I also just took a lot of discipline. There were days when I was teaching and had a gig at night that I would wake up at 4 a.m. to do my P90X workout before school. And so when you wake up at 4 a.m. to work out, you become the kind of person that wakes up at 4 a.m. to work out. It just does something yep. to your mind. Mm -hmm. And I saw what delayed gratification and grit and consistency could bring. And I really got addicted to the results. I loved the way I looked. I loved the confidence that it gave me. And mm -hmm. Something else, truthfully, being a very short man, I, I would get overlooked, like literally and metaphorically in a lot of conversations, especially be like getting into speaking and doing marching band instruction, standing in front of two to 300 kids at a time. And I would go to the clinic and I noticed that as I developed a physique, people just perceived me differently. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have to try to get them to focus. They would just focus. I think when you look at someone that clearly takes care of themselves, regardless of their height or stature or whatever, you just have an initial respect that says they take care of themselves. Right. And so I also didn't, I wanted to keep that going too. You have one shot at a first impression and everything helps. And so I really became addicted to those results. And truthfully, my fitness in the beginning, my passion was all about aesthetics. I just wanted the look. I wanted to have the confidence of seeing how I looked. And I liked the reactions I got from other people. It was self-centered for sure, but that's what motivated me at the time. But then it became more about self-fulfillment when I got into bodybuilding because I had done the P90X stuff. I wasn't very strong. I wasn't very big, but I was very lean. Right. And then I got into weightlifting. I got into the gym. And then I read an article called why bodybuilders look, it was something like why bodybuilders look more jacked than powerlifters. 
Oh, okay. Which I did wonder because like power lifters are stronger, but they all look fat, big, mm. but bodybuilders may not be, are still insanely strong. They're not as strong as power lifters, but they look way better. Like, why is that? And I learned about the bodybuilding lifestyle, the training, the eating, the goal of shaping the physique. And I was like, that's what I want. So then I got into bodybuilding training. Then I found an incredible website called T Nation. They have an amazing supplement line with BioTest and they have great forums. And I started reading prep diary logs of natural competitors that mm. would literally keep an online diary of what it was like preparing for a natural competition. And I was looking at their physiques and I'm looking at my physique and I'm like, I think I can do that. I think I can do, I think I can achieve that level of like literally having an action figure physique. Right. And so I found an amazing natural coach in my area, hired him, started competing, got last place at my first show, but it's trial and error. And within a couple of years, I was winning all my shows, got my natural pro cards. Wow. And it was the most challenging thing I've ever done <laughs> preparing for a show. You're weighing every gram of food. I would go, I literally went to my best friend's wedding a week before a show with my own cooler of cold chicken and broccoli. <laughs> Brought my own food to the wedding, but I won my show the next weekend. So getting into that level of discipline was just incredible because literally like everything is easier than that. And so when I get into business and I have long stretches of delayed gratification, like building my course, still not as hard as a bodybuilding prep. <laughs> and as a natural competitor without the assistance of chemicals, it was especially as a guy without a fast metabolism, very, very challenging. And even though I don't compete anymore, I haven't in almost six years, I still live that lifestyle. I was at the gym, at, woke up at the gym by six this morning, trained yep. six days a week with the weights. I still eat my macros. I still weigh all my food. I still eat a very lifestyle. I don't drink. I don't eat desserts because not just because I like the results and I like being healthy mm -hmm. and I like the way I look, but it's also just a disciplined lifestyle. And that just maintains discipline in all areas. I also truly believe that to become the, to maximize our God-given potential, we need to be healthy. Right. Our body truly is a temple, says that right in the Bible. It is a temple that God has blessed us with. And I don't remember the exact verse, but there's a verse that talks about sinning is the man whose God is their appetite. Hmm. And I think appetite literally means like food. And I think appetite also means for like earthly things that we really shouldn't be focusing on. But in order to give glory to God, we need to take care of ourselves to honor him for blessing us with this life and this body. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm really curious of in particular to the, the uh, training protocol for being in the professional bodybuilding world. Like how would you say that differs from what you do now for your training as if you want to call it a recreational yeah. weightlifter. Sure. Sure. Yeah. When you're competing, I would say right now I'm in like maintenance mode. If right. I can maintain the physique I have, I'm right. good. I'm yeah. past the point of trying to kill myself to put on muscle. I think I've likely maximized my natural genetic abilities for putting on muscle. But when you're competing, it's about obviously symmetry, conditioning, muscle size, muscle maturity, and so when you're competing in bodybuilding, it's very much about analyzing, you want to get as big and muscular and symmetrical as possible. But part of that is analyzing weak areas. Mm -hmm. I've naturally always genetically had very big legs. 
and a very big chest. So lucky like, you. <laughs> yeah, good luck, lucky me. So like training quads, training to like people before I even step foot in the gym, people will be like, do you bench? And I'd be like, oh, totally. I'd never bench. In my life. <laughs> but, and the thing is you can't really tell how proportionate your physique is until you get extremely low body fat and right. see what's under the hood. And so when I competed at my first year of shows and I got down to really great conditioning, it wasn't all the way quite as peeled as I needed to be, but I did place really well and had a great physique by my second competition. Then I could really see, all right, like wheels are good. Chest is good. Back is thick, but the shoulders and arms need to come up. The shoulders and arms were improportionate because I had a big chest mm -hmm. and the shoulders and arms looked proportionally smaller compared to the rest of my body. Right. So then, and, and my hamstrings as well needed to come up. The quads were there. The hamstrings needed to come up. So then my coach and I put a plan together where we upped the frequency and I was doing hams twice a week. I was doing shoulders and arms twice a week. Step back to maintenance mode for chest and quads. Always had, I did ab work, but my abs were always had nice round muscle belly, bellies and very defined. So the second year was all about becoming more proportionate, getting a wider back, wider lats and shoulders, bringing up the shoulders, arms and hams to the right level. And I won all my shows in my second year. I competed twice that year and won both my shows, got my pro cards. When you're competing, you never think you look good enough. It could always be better, but it's really about analyzing weak areas to be as symmetrical as possible. You don't want to have small legs. You don't want to have a small chest. You don't want to have a small, like I did shoulders and arms because it's not in proportion. So that was really the focus in terms of training is to be as symmetrical as possible. Okay. Okay. So more of a well proportioned and more of an analytical approach to very training than yes. you know, recreational. It's as long as I hit all the muscle groups, I'm, I'm yeah. Doing yeah. And that's what I do. I still do a, a pretty typical bodybuilding. I'll alternate. Sometimes I'll do push pull for a while. Sometimes I'll do more standard bodybuilding template, but I still hit everything. And I also care more about things I didn't used to care about as much. Like when I was training, I was like ab adductors, whatever. But now it's more about just longevity. You and I are the same age with 39. Yeah. And I just, I want to be able to still walk without a walker when I'm 80. So I'm thinking long-term, just more about longevity and being healthy rather than crushing it to, to put on mass. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, we're in exactly the same, same mindset with yeah. that. I'm in that. Same mode, like when I was younger, like I never professionally competed or anything like that, especially in my college years and, and shortly thereafter, really big into the weightlifting. I was going seven days a week, sometimes right. twice a day, and right. just sure. you know, down to 5% body fat. I was doing well. But now, yeah, it's, I don't have that. Frankly, I don't have that desire to yeah. put my right. body through that. That's right. That lifting those huge heavy weights putting yourself through that extreme discomfort and some of yeah. these, some of these exercises and things like that. So I've toned it down, at least for this phase or this stage where I'm at right now, my mentality has been, if I can't do it without the assistance of wrist straps or a back brace or knee wraps, then that's probably more weight than I need to be doing. So yeah, exactly. I stopped doing that. Any deadlifts I'm only doing, let my grip be my weak link. If I can't nice. hold to it, then no wraps. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and that's really smart. I've been able to thankfully avoid injury because, and there have been some times in my lifting career when I felt some nerve pain coming or something. And I just, I step away from it. I work around it. I don't try to work through it. My coach, Stu Yellen, a world-class natural bodybuilder, he was getting ready to compete for natural world championships. 
and he had to get, he was in his late thirties. He had to get shoulder surgery unexpectedly. I think so many men get shoulder surgery prematurely because they go into the gym and they do chest and arms all day. They don't work the back half. They don't work the bottom half and they go too heavy. And that front delt, I actually recently found out, I felt this little hard bump on my shoulder last week. And I went to my doctor just to check it out. I was like, what's this? And he was like, oh, that's your bone. You're starting to get arthritis. And I was like, what the, what? He was like, yeah, you look like you work out. It's probably from that. It's just little, it doesn't hurt. But I was like, aren't I too young for that? He's, it's not about age. It's about mileage. Right. Well, you got football players in their thirties with arthritis in their knees. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. So that was even more so like, all right, like I've never done one rep maxes ever. Maybe one time in my whole life I did that because it's just too conducive. Low reps for me is like six. I respect for your time. We'll start to wrap things up, but really appreciate you sharing everything you have, Rob. I think you and I are kindred spirits in a lot of these, a lot of yeah, these areas. For here. sure which is awesome. And you gave some really great advice, really great tips, really great insights. What we do like to ask is if we can leave our audience with, out of everything we talked about, just three actionable or practical tips based on what we already talked about. Oh, good question. All right. Let's hit one of each. Number one, with your faith, uh, read the Bible every morning. Read it. Yeah. Don't listen to it because if you're listening to it, it's passive listening. It's really hard to pay attention. Even if it's five minutes a day. Mm-hmm. Get up early, read the Bible. The best way to know how to maximize your God-given potential is to read the word and know God. So all of your life is going to get better when you read the Bible every day. Number two, prioritize your health. High-performing entrepreneurs prioritize their physical health. I've never met a really high net worth person personally. They're probably out there, but that, that doesn't prioritize their health. Mm-hmm. So important. Do that. You want to know how to do it? Shoot me a message. I'll be happy to help. There's a ton of research out there. Number three, make sure you have clear financial goals as to what you want. Making as much money as possible is not a goal because how do you know when you've met it? Right. So just make sure as an investor, as an agent, whatever your entrepreneurial journey is, set metrics, know your goals so you can actually know when you hit them. One of the biggest things I see with entrepreneurs is we never feel like we're enough. We never feel like we have enough. But a lot of that stems from the fact that you don't know what you're, you don't have a target to aim for. And making as much money as possible is not a target. Know what your goals are so you can actually celebrate those wins along the way. Excellent. Excellent. Wonderful. And Rob, if people want to get in touch with you, learn more about your coaching program, what's the best way for them to reach out? Yeah, you can follow me on Instagram at robstein underscore impossible to fail. And the name of my program is Earth to Orbit, Earth to Orbit Training.com. You can check it out. If you were on this podcast, go ahead and shoot my team a message, or you can send me an email at robstein.com or shoot me a DM. I'll hook you up with uh, some bonuses and some discounts on that program. Awesome. And when's your book coming out? Uh, it's going to be coming out Q1 of next year, Impossible to Fail. It'll be available for pre-order soon. It's going to be awesome. So appreciate if y'all want to check it out. Wonderful, wonderful. Right on. Ladies and gentlemen, make sure to check out Rob. Check out his coaching program. Check out his book when it comes out. Really great stuff here. And Rob, again, really appreciate the time. Yeah, God bless you, man. Thank you, bro. Thank you.